honestly, my call to action is is pretty basic. It's let's have conversations. Let's teach physicians about women's bodies. And, you know, for me, where I sit and I, I live in the innovation world and I think the solutions are in innovations. I think, um, you know, telehealth has been absolutely incredible for women specifically. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Today, we're going to be talking about women's health, and more specifically, diagnostic testing and screening as it relates to women's health. My guest is Dr. Brittany Barreto. In addition to being the host of the Femtech Focus podcast, she also has a PhD in genetics, and we're going to talk a little bit about both of those. Dr. Beretta was also an entrepreneur, and we'll talk about that path as well. And then we'll talk about a few areas of women's health and get her thoughts on the future of diagnostics. All right, here's Dr. Brittany Barreto. We're going to go back to college where you majored in biology, which actually, so did I. Uh, so I, I want to start there. Like, where did the interest in biology come from? Yeah. Uh, so seventh grade, 12 years old, we had um, geology. And I almost failed it. And I remember being a 12-year-old girl telling my mom, I hate science. I hate science. It's the worst. And then eighth grade, we had cellular biology. And we learned about mitochondria and the nucleus and your DNA encodes who you are. And I loved science. And so it turns out I just don't like rocks. So it's been a, a consistent um, <laughs> a consistent interest and a disinterest of mine. I've never really got into chemistry or rocks or geology, but uh, life sciences, biology, genetics, absolutely adore it. I actually thought I wanted to be a genetic counselor and meet with people and, you know, consult them on their genetic reports. But in college, I shadowed one for the day and she spent her day telling pregnant moms that their unborn babies were going to be very sick. And I was like, oh, my dream job is literally the saddest job in the world. <laughs> like, I don't want to yeah. do that anymore. And so ran back to my academic advisor and said, oh, my God, what do I do? My dream job is like the worst. And he said, uh, just do an internship in my lab. And turns out I have pretty good uh, knack for scientific experiments in the laboratory. So pursued that through a PhD. Okay, so this internship then, what what was that? What what were you doing? We actually were studying the uh, effects of estrogen on neurons for potential correlation with Alzheimer's disease. So pretty cool stuff. And, uh, you know, I didn't discover anything. I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, that poor grant money, like <laughs> just some undergrad, like trying not to contaminate all the samples. But it was a really great foundational training. Okay. That, that, that makes sense. All right. Now you mentioned genetics already. You went on to earn a PhD in genetics. Yeah. Genetics is sort of a subset of biology, but mm -hmm. how did the genetics become like specifically your interest? Well, you know, I think it was always there with that genetic counseling part. It just was a matter of how do I have a career in genetics? And then I had that skill set that I learned through those internships in undergrad about, you know, being in a laboratory. And honestly, when I graduated college, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And my advisor just said, you know, go for the PhD. You could do whatever you want after that, you know? And so I was a crazy, dedicated girl who thought my value was in the degrees that I had. So signed up for some some more uh, student loan debt. I'm sure your listeners know all about that and uh, and pursued my PhD. But 
you know, one thing I did differently was even during orientation at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, where I went, I was asking, how do I graduate? And people were looking at me like, girl, you're in orientation. Why are you worried about graduation? And I was like, my eyes on the prize. I want to know what I need to do to leave. And sure enough, I graduated in about four and a half years. And I attribute the national average is six years. So I attribute my year and a half cutoff, you know, because I used E. coli as my organism and E. coli is way easier to work with than animal models or let alone humans. And then second, um, I knew from orientation, okay, I need one first author published paper to leave. And everything I did was, you know, experiments for a graph that was going to be in that paper. Okay. This is interesting because you, even back then you had this kind of goal oriented mindset. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I I think as we're talking, I think we're going to get into a little bit more of that. Now, so so you mentioned you uh, did your PhD at Baylor and I believe during the time you were there, you did an internship at a company called Luminastics, which I think is called something else now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, um, you know, again, during orientation, like I said, I went to, to PhD, you know, grad school, still not sure what my career path was. And honestly, getting into that PhD program, there was about 100 PhD students that they accepted from around the world into uh, 12 different departments. There was about 10 students in the genetics department. And I mean, we're talking the highest caliber of valedictorian people. Nobody got my jokes. Everyone was introverted. No one had tattoos. I had short, spiky hair at the time. I'm like a kind of a, a more colorful, creative scientist. And so I was actually even more concerned about my career trajectory because I was like, I honestly didn't make a lot of friends in grad school. And that made me worried because I was like, these are going to be my colleagues. Like, I want to work somewhere where I love what I do, but I also love who I work with. Not that I didn't love them, but. Yeah. I felt lonely. I felt really lonely. And I think that a lot of the other, my peers were comfortable in that quiet and the, and the isolation that comes with working in a cell culture room by yourself. I, it drove me nuts. So um, I very quickly started to go to the Career Development Center at Baylor College of Medicine and asking like, what else can I do with a PhD? Uh, they offered a bunch of different potential avenues. And I went to some info sessions. But one of them was entrepreneurship. And we actually toured a startup. And everyone was in jeans and t-shirts. And they were drinking beer and eating pizza. And they were like trying to cure cancer. And I was like, this is awesome. This is where I want to be. And then I went to a pitch competition. And there were extroverted scientists on stage talking about this vision that they have, but they're going to create this solution or this thing. And I was like, all right, I'm sold. This is what I want to do. And um, I thought the first, you know, logical next step was to get a little experience to make sure similar to that genetic counseling experience, right? Where I shadowed her for the day, realized my dream was a nightmare. Um, I figured I should do the same for this, shadow someone, you know, do a little project, make sure it is the good fit. And mm-hmm. Luminostics, um, originally, it's a it's a platform device where they have a, a product that they were trying to diagnose like urinary tract infections at home. So you would pee on the strip, and then they had certain antibodies that would illuminate when if you did in fact have a UTI, and you could use your iPhone to take a picture of this test strip and actually get the diagnostic result on your phone. And so I thought that was pretty cool. Like, I like yeah. this idea of, you know, pathology at home, essentially, right? Um, uh-huh. And I, uh, you know, said, hey, do you need any 
Googling done? You need any research, market research? By the way, every startup needs some interns to Google for them. Like there's a ton of things that we need to get Googled and written up in a report. So if you are interested in entrepreneurship, go get an internship with a startup. So they said, sure enough, yes. And and it's so funny how it like I look back and it all kind of connects. They said, we're interested in potentially what if our test could be work used for fertility? So women could pee on this and then find out if they're fertile or not based on their hormones. And I was like, oh, okay. And admittedly, Dennis, I thought women were fertile like maybe two or three weeks out of the month. I I even as a PhD student, a 22-year-old woman, female, still did not know that women are actually only fertile about three days every month. So I was really coming from what is the typical female experience in the world, which is I'm uneducated about my own biology. And so that experience was super cool because one, I learned a lot about myself and I was like, oh, oh, that's how that works. Okay, like here's how these hormones are and here's what this is. And my ovaries aren't just filled with eggs waiting like they're they need to mature into eggs and all this stuff. And I was also like consulting these tech bros on periods and, you know, ovulation. And they asked me to do things like, you know, I know it was really Uh fun. It was was, was quite fun. They asked me, um, you know, go find all the current uh, tests available at CVS and tell us what the prices were. And I was like, this is so cool to see like to take my science hat and take a new business hat that I now had, you know, and be able to say, okay, here are the tests that t- test for progesterone. Here's the tests that look at LH. Here's the ones that test for both. You know, he, and then uh, and then being able to say these p- companies charge this much per test. This company charges this much per test. And I realized that I, I just really enjoyed that. And it was a, a different kind of research than I've ever done, but really enjoyed it. And that's uh, when I caught the startup bug. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now, then, then from there, you actually started a company called Ferramore, which now this sounds like a combination of your you know work in genetics and then this startup bug as you just mentioned. Uh, can you talk about Ferramore and what what that is? Yeah, the the third bug I had was being chronically single. Um, so <laughs> Ferramore <laughs> okay. was the world's first DNA based dating app. So what I did was I had actually learned in undergrad in college that scientists could predict who's attracted to who because of genetics. So based on your immune system genes, you can actually predict who you'll be most instantly attracted to. So physical attraction, whether that's be blushing or forgetting what you're talking about, losing your appetite, those are all signs that you're attracted to someone. And those uh, that's an activation of your fight fight or flight response. And it's activated by pheromones. And those pheromones of somebody else are telling you that their immune system is different than yours. So evolutionarily, we use this to figure out who was our relative and who wasn't so that we didn't breed with our, you know, similar kin. So you know, obviously today we have like 23andMe and we all know who our most, for the most part, we know who our family is. Uh, Uh But yet we're still mammals. We're still animals and pheromones are still driving us. So I learned about this phenomenon in college. And I remember actually raising my hand and asking my professor, can I make geneharmony.com? And he was like, I mean, I guess you could, but that's weird. And, uh, you know, that's, (laughs) 
I just couldn't get the idea out of my head. So uh-huh. fast forward, you know, I'm now I'm like, oh, entrepreneurship. And people are starting to ask me, Britt, are you going to start a company? What are you going to do? And I said, well, I only have one crazy idea for a DNA-based dating app. And my friend said, go for it. That sounds awesome. And so I formed Faramore in 2016. So how, how did that go then? I mean, <laughs> it went well. I fundraised about 1.3 million from angels okay. and venture capital, uh, built a team, built the product. We launched it. We scaled it. We were nationwide. I was on the news and I actually traveled worldwide talking about the science of love. That was really fun. In fact, the algorithm we used also uh, you know, it was based on these immune system genes. Some other things that were incorporated in there were like increased fertility rates. So it's just, it was just really, really cool. Unfortunately, Apple changed their policy in 2019, prohibiting certain types of apps from asking for your DNA. And as a geneticist, I think that's really smart because we should not just allow anyone who can code to ask for your genome. Um, I think at mm. one point that's going to be dangerous. It's not dangerous yet, but one day garage sure. CRISPR kits exist. And so dating, unfortunately, was prohibited. And so we got kicked off the app store. And I was just about to close another $2 million in fundraising. And the investors pulled out, obviously. I wouldn't, don't blame them. But uh, yeah, and I had to close the company and it was, it was a dark time, but you know, I look back and I'm just like that. It was just a, a really big learning experience for me. Sure. Okay. I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Taking, taking what you learned from that experience. And now you, so then you get into the world of femtech and this is kind of where you are yeah. to this, to this day. Yeah. Now I, I want to sort of define what that means first, and then we're going to talk about how that relates to women's health. Yeah. So Femtech is a word coined in 2016 by Ida Tin. She's the founder of Clue, a period tracking app. And the word Femtech means solutions that address conditions of uh, female women and girls and conditions that solely disproportionately or differently affect them. So what we mean by that is that solutions to conditions that solely affect females are your menstruation, maternal health, menopause, things that you often think of as a women's issue. But it also includes things that disproportionately affect women, such as autoimmune disease and migraines um, and things like uh, dispropor- are differently affecting women. So women have less heart attacks than men, but we die more often from them because the way that it manifests in our heart is very different. And the reason we need femtech and it can't and it's not just healthcare, right? Cuz you may ask yourself, well, isn't that just healthcare? Well, healthcare and medicine has been based on a male paradigm. 75% of the cell lines we use in basic scientific research are male. They're XY chromosomes. 95% of animal models we use in scientific research, including like animal studies for drugs are in male models, even drugs for things that are specifically to females. I know we're going to talk about endometriosis. Endometriosis, they actually uh, cured it twice in mice. But as soon as they went to human trials, it immediately failed because all of the animal models they used were male. They were male. They just, they implanted endometrial tissue into them. Isn't that crazy? That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. So 
uh, female mice are on a four-day ovulation cycle. And so in order to incorporate their hormone spikes into experiments, you have to do hormone testing every day to kind of standardize where they are in their cycle and standardize your results. So, I mean, I think at this point we have AI, we have machine learning, we have, you know, processes, we have algorithms online that can cure diseases now, right? We don't necessarily always need these animal models. But what's happened over time is that, fortunately, science has just kind of succumbed to this idea of like, this is how it is. And then no one questions it. But then all of a sudden, there's all this grant money and opportunity that's going out the window because we've gotten kind of complacent on this male model. I can go on and on. So for example, 72% of FDA approved drugs have zero data on pregnant or breastfeeding women. They just say, ask your doctor. And uh, I've asked the doctors because I thought, well, maybe there's some memo they get. They don't get any memo. Uh-huh. The the FDA essentially is just passing the buck to the doctors for them to decide whether or not to let their patient have it while pregnant or or breastfeeding. So that's crazy because 72% of drugs on the market, women aren't pregnant for the weekend, right? Women are trying to be right. are or are breastfeeding for years at a time, and we can't just expect them to not have access to 72% of the drugs. So that's why we have femtech. To get back to it as I go down my rabbit hole, that's why we have femtech because there's all of this like historical and systemic exclusion of females from healthcare innovation. And what's happening is that women suffer the consequences. We have five times more symptoms from drugs than men do. We're dying from heart attacks more, even though y'all have more of them, right? Like there's, there's all these consequences. uh, And we're going to talk about more of them today. But that's why I'm really passionate about it. Women weren't included in clinical trials till 1993. So we we are truly still on the on the early precipice of starting to innovate with sex as a variable. So one more thing about femtech before we talk about some of the uh, women women's health uh, issues mm-hmm. related to that. Now, I, I was telling somebody about uh, about you and about femtech, and this, so these are tech companies that that look at women's health issues. Yeah. Now, are, are they necessarily uh, founded or run by women? Yeah. So we have over 90% female founders and that is not a requirement. Like there's nobody saying okay. like, do you have a vagina? If not, you can't you know, run this company. It's, it's literally uh, what we see is a trend in the increase of females in STEM professions and then the increase of solutions for female specific conditions. So what we hypothesize is these women are getting endometriosis, they're getting breast cancer, they're getting, you know, uh, severe migraines, you know, and physicians are telling them, well, that's just how it is. Like periods are painful, you know, take an Advil and whatever, you know, medical gaslighting, and we'll get to that too. But uh, these women are saying, um, this is unacceptable. Uh, I'm actually a physician. I'm going to make a solution or I'm an engineer. I'm going to make a medical device or I'm a coder. I'm going to create an app. And so that we actually see this huge influx of women serving women in femtech. Uh, it is an industry. It's so awesome to work in femtech. If anyone's looking to like jump ship in whatever industry you work in femtech, we would welcome you with open arms. We are an industry run by passion. These are amazing, incredible women that could be out there making six figures 
and they're here forfeiting their paycheck because they're creating a solution that they know, even if they can't experience it one day, they know generations of other women can. And so it's a really selfless, um, collaborative and passion driven industry. It's, it's seriously, it's so awesome. And yeah, so 90% are female founders, but we have some awesome, awesome men involved too. And the men that are in femtech are honestly the creme of the crop of, of males. Okay. Okay. That's, that sounds, that sounds good. All right. So let's uh, talk about a few areas of women's health uh, in femtech and kind of related to pathology and Mm -hmm. diagnostics. Now, the, the the first one I want to talk about is cervical cancer. Yeah. So now, at least in, in this country, here here in the U.S., there's widespread use of pap smears and now with the HPV vaccine. So it seems like maybe diagnostics for cervical cancer are adequate, mm-hmm. at, le- at least here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you think about that? Yeah. So um, in 2020, 194 countries actually committed to ending cervical cancer globally. And that's the first commitment of its kind for any type of cancer. Uh, They've actually almost done it in Australia and New Zealand. They've done a great, great job of it. We still need a lot more work here because in the United States each year, we have about 13,000 new cases of cervical cancer and 4,000 women die a year from cervical cancer, which is totally preventable. Those 4,000 women are disproportionately uh, Hispanic and black. And, you know, we look into this and we're like, is it because of their race? Is it because of their genetics? Like, what are they, what's happening? And honestly, the biggest risk factor for them and why they're, they're getting it and dying is actually access to care. And, you know, that's something I'd like to talk about in terms of diagnostics and treatment around the world for women's health, specifically for cervical cancer, is that one of the biggest uh, components of the, the pathology of cervical cancer is getting your pap smear. And, you know, getting the results back and then being able to treat it. And so 75% of females in reproductive age have been exposed to HPV. And there's over 100 strains of HPV. But um, those strains are, you know, disproportionately represented in different countries. And so uh, some of the, so by the way, not all the strains cause terrible things. Some you don't even notice you have it. Some do cause genital warts and some cause cancer of the cervix, vagina, vulva, or anus, um, and head, neck, and throat cancer as well. Uh, most of these problems are actually caused by HPV type 6, 11, 16, and 18. Those are the strains prioritized in the United States vaccine. Now, I, you know, talk to founders around the world and there is a incredible man, a man, you know, we're talking about the 10% of men. There's an awesome dude named uh, Teo who created a device I'd love to tell you about, but he's in Mexico and he's like, oh yeah, I'm creating this thing to detect cervical cancer. And I was like, Teo, why why are you doing that? Aren't we good? Like, why are we, why do we need a new diagnostic? Women get pap smears, right? And he said, well, you know, the vaccines are created by the developed countries for the developed countries. The strains that are prevalent in South America and Central America are not covered in that vaccine. And that was really um, astonishing to me, but also I'm like, well, 
there's a hundred strains of HPV. I I guess I'm not surprised that, you know, some, you know, pharma companies budget prioritize their US customers and therefore their US variants. So first of all, the HPV vaccine that exists prioritizes predominantly Caucasian strains and not, you know, anywhere else in the world. And then secondly, when you start to think about women in rural areas, you know, a pap smear is taking a sample of cells from her cervix. So first of all, you have to get through the cultural barriers of asking a woman who may have never had a pap smear and, you know, is uh, culturally or religiously like uh, avoiding that type of an interaction. It's very intimate, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But once if you do, then Teo, this is what he did. He was on some mission trip. He went out there to get some women, well, women exams out in Mexico. Uh, They got some tests done, pap smears done. Half of the pap smears didn't make it back to the lab without contamination. And so I know your, you know, your listeners are pathologists and stuff. And so you can try to imagine, you know, cell samples coming from jungles or deserts or, you know, sitting in a van for 10 days, you know, without any cooling or whatever. Uh, Half of the samples weren't, you know, they couldn't even process them. Uh, The rest of the half of the samples, they did actually identify some abnormal cells. But what Teo experienced was he said, "Okay, well, how are we going to let the women know? And how are we going to find them? He said that when they went back to these villages, a lot of times they couldn't find the women. And so he's actually creating uh, a diagnostic tool for a point of care diagnostic. So instead of a pap smear where you send it out, he is actually uh, an electrical engineer and he did some research. He did some Googling, right? Google's like the <laughs> the biggest inventor of the world. He uh, found out that cancer cells respond to electrical current differently than non-cancer cells do. And so he's actually created this wand. His company's called Hera Diagnostics. And this wand actually has a very, very light electrical current, and it reads out these signals. So when you're on, on site in these rural areas with women, you can actually just have that wand testing her cervix and have it read out if she has abnormal cells or not. So that is a, a real advance in in diagnostics that I think, while I know it'll save it'll save many women's lives. Okay, yeah, that's that's very interesting. That point of care testing, and then you know immediately. Uh, and they can be recommended for further care if needed. Yeah. In fact, yeah. there's actually another startup called Ananya Health, and it's okay. the first point of care treatment for abnormal cervical cells. So it's a portable cryoablation device that is battery powered. And it is so easy to use that you don't even need a physician. You can just have um, a, a nurse do the procedure. So when those women, because you could imagine telling a woman in the jungle, uh, you have abnormal cervical cells, you know, like, what's she going to do? You know, come back to the village with them, right? Like, so to be able to pair up this point of care diagnostic tool with a point of care treatment that is portable, easy to use, inexpensive, this isn't just for, you know, the rural societies of the world. This is this could be really beneficial to the black women in, you know, rural Alabama or Mississippi. And like these are the women who are still dying in the United States from cervical cancer. And it's because of the lack of accessibility. OK, yeah, I can see how that would greatly increase accessibility. That that's that could be really revolutionary for both diagnostics and treatment. That's amazing. Okay. So the next area we wanted to talk about was breast cancer diagnostics. Mm -hmm. Now, 
So this might be similar. I mean, here in the US, we've got widespread use of mammography. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, is is that enough as far as diagnostics? Or is that maybe too much because there's, you know, the recommended schedules and, and things like that? Yeah. Or, or should there be something else? Molecular diagnostics, it's something else. So yeah. what what are your thoughts on that? Well, first and foremost, I, I have never had a mammogram, but any woman who ever has, apparently she says out loud as the, as the machine squishes her breast, she says, if a woman made this, it wouldn't be like this. <laughs> you mm. know, like every woman who's ever had a mammogram knows a man created that machine because it is wild uncomfortable um, to have two radiation plates squeeze your breast to the point that it looks like a pancake. It's never been in that position before. And so um, first of all, mammograms are not comfortable, right? And so Femtech is also not only creating solutions we need, but solutions that are actually convenient and not like, oh, well, this is women's health care. You know, you have to suffer. We we can step it up, y'all. It's 2022. We can do better. Um, but also, it's actually quite shocking. Half of all women who get mammograms will receive a false positive. So false positive is, you know, it looks as if she has something wrong. It looks as if she has a nodule or something going on, but it's actually not true. There is some kind of discrepancy in the images, or maybe that's just how her breast looks. Um, this happens a lot for women with dense breasts. So um, Asian women, uh, women with smaller breasts are usually have dense breasts, but uh, half, half of all women, and this is in the United States, I'm not talking some third world country, United States, half of all mammograms result in a false positive, which you can imagine you all of a sudden you go, you're feeling good about yourself. I'm doing my annual mammogram. And then two weeks later, you get a call. They say, we found something. That's so crazy that half of those aren't going to be true. So 12% of mammograms are recalled for more workups. So the second stage is a uh, ultrasound. Um, And then, so 12% of mammograms are called back. So a woman thinks she has breast cancer. Her anxiety is peaked. She has to take off of work. She has to find childcare. You know, she has to pay more copays, go to the doctor. God forbid she lives three hours from a hospital, right? Like, so she goes, she gets another one. Of those recalled, uh, only 4% of those recalled. So let's say 100 women are recalled. Only four of them actually end up getting a diagnosis of cancer. And so what's the moral of the story here? The moral of the story is that even though everyone's like, oh, mammograms, you know, they're the best thing for breast cancer. They've really decreased it. Yes, they have. And they are wildly inefficient and they cause so much mental heartache, uh, you know, for, for women and their families, their partners, their kids, you know, like people in their lives are like, oh my God, I'm so sorry you had this positive result. And then turns out like her actual probability of having breast cancer is so low. So um, absolutely, we need better diagnostics for this because just taking uh, pictures of our squished pancake breasts is like, it's, it's not even effective. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Brittany Barreto. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. 
comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Brittany Barreto on the People of Pathology podcast. Okay, are you aware of, you know, like you mentioned some of the startups uh, coming out with with things for cervical cancer. Are you aware of any for breast cancer? Yeah, yeah. So there's one called uh, Prime Genomics. And what they're doing is uh, trying to create a saliva test to actually, uh, you know, diagnose eventually for diagnostic of breast cancer. So whenever you have cancer, um, you can kind of think about it like an engine's uh, emissions. Cancer lets off metabolites. It lets off things that signals to uh, an a test like, hey, you have cancer is inside of you. And so Prime Genomics has discovered some uh, compounds in the saliva that could be metabolites from breast cancer. And so their first goal is to actually create, you know, establish a test, prove its efficacy, and then do what they do is a, a mammogram plus the saliva test. So hopefully we can actually decrease that number of recalls of women going back to get ultrasound. So even if your image looks weird, they have the genetic or the saliva test to um, because it's not necessarily genetics. It's, you know, proteins that are looking at small RNAs. It's a lot of different, you know, like I said, emissions from the cancer. They can actually say, hey, we did get this, but your saliva test is fine. So, you know, and I don't know what the physician would say at that point. They'll create a whole protocol and whether or not the woman comes back. But that's a hell of a lot better than, oh, my God, we see something come back in, you know, um, and right. but the their vision is that one day women actually just get a saliva test sent to their house they swab their mouth, they send it in and boom, you get emailed results. So absolutely, absolutely incredible if they can do that. And another one actually recently won the Dyson Award. So the Dyson Award is awarded every year to the most innovative technology that um, is really going to make a mark on improving women's health. And this company called Dotplot just won it this week, announced in the BBC News. And what it is, is Dotplot is a at-home self-check exam tool. So once a month, women have this little this little pad, this little like um, modular little device, uh, and she rubs it up and down on her breasts and it's connected Bluetooth to an app. And the app actually is sensing the sound waves that this device is pushing through her tissue and it can actually take a baseline assessment. And then she does it every month on the same time and she's got the app. So it reminds her, hey, it's time for your check. And it does it again. And the app can actually tell her if it sees any changes or abnormal uh, frequencies. And then, then she can go to her doctor go move forward with the mammogram. And so, you know, one of the biggest issues for women in self-breast exams is a lot of times lumps will move around or a woman is not, she questions herself. She's like, is that, I don't know. By time she's like, okay, yeah, it's bad enough. I should go, especially in the United States where women are really putting their health last in comparison to their family's health. Uh, By Mm -hmm. time she goes, that lump is a lump. It's a huge lump. So um, doing these at home diagnostic, you know, screening tools, it's not going to, it's not going to say you have cancer at home, but this is, this is a way that we can use really basic sound waves, Bluetooth enabled app 
you know, tools that, you know, an everyday woman can use can really potentially move the needle on uh, breast cancer um, awareness and, and treatment. Yeah, it seems like, you know, there's there's more and more of these sort of app based kind of at home tests coming out mm-hmm. for various things. And it, it, it seems like that's kind of going to be where uh, diagnostics goes in the future, maybe not completely, but uh, at in, least in, for some, in some way. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that brings in the uh, availability aspect there. Uh, just affordability. The, you know, affordability. Yeah. Just and more, you know, less discomfort for, for, for patients. Yeah. I think that COVID 19 well. truly shifted that paradigm. I mean, we already had Everly Well, like for at home, like food sensitivity or, you know, even had, had at home STD test kits. But now it's like people, now that we've proven like people are capable of swabbing their nose, putting it into a liquid, moving it around, dropping it onto a liquid chromatography disc, like we're like women have been peeing on pregnancy sticks forever. We know how to read whether there's two lines or one, but we've now proven that everyone can do that for the most part. So I see a lot more screening tools being developed for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, all right. So, so the next one you, you mentioned a little bit earlier. So this is endometriosis, mm-hmm. and this is a long history of being underdiagnosed and misunderstood. Yeah. Now, so from my perspective, working in the pathology lab, it, it seems like at least in recent years we've been seeing endometriosis more often. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what do you think about diagnostics for endometriosis. Yeah. So um, I guess first, I'd love to just tell your listeners uh, what endometriosis is, since they may not know breast cancer, cervical cancer, they may know that. So uh, endometriosis is when the endometrial lining, which is the inner lining of the uterus that sheds every month during menstruation, actually is outside of the uterus. And so one way that it can get outside of the uterus is through the uh, fallopian tubes. So a lot of people think your ovaries are connected to your fallopian tubes. They're actually not. There's space there. So one way is actually through, um, it's almost like acid reflux in your esophagus, but it's through effluent through your fallopian tubes. Uh, another way is that the endometrial tissue is literally just your bio, your, your biology puts it in different, the wrong places. So they, doctors have found endometrial tissue on the colon. They've even found it on the brain. They found it everywhere. So mm-hmm. lots of crazy things because you can imagine that tissue is responding to the hormones of the body saying, hey, release yourself. And all of a sudden, it's like you have internal bleeding, right? Like that's that's insane. And these women are suffering. On average, it takes seven years to be diagnosed. And I truly am a huge, 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 like, supporter of more diagnostic tools. You know, Femtech, we have tampons and apps and, you know, therapeutics, but I'm, I'm singing for people, please make more diagnostic tools. Because I believe that the reason we have these seven year long diagnostic journeys is because there's no tool, there's no actual test. So today, The only way to diagnose endometriosis is through laparoscopic surgery, where they do exploratory analysis. 
50% of the time it comes back as inconclusive. So I'm sorry, Dennis, it's probably you <laughs> like writing inconclusive, incon- but, uh, um, you know, that's <laughs> what it is because they have, uh, they will have the woman come in. She has to be in so much pain that she says, do surgery on me. They load up her abdomen with all this air and they look around her abdomen and they try to find this endometrial tissue. They'll take samples of it from around the inside of her body. And then they send it to folks like you to do an analysis to see if it's endometriosis. That is bananas that in 2022, our protocol is exploratory surgery. <laughs> like that's nonsense. We, we're we we're planning on going to Mars. Like we should probably figure this out. It affects one in 10 women. It's not some rare disease. One in 10 women. If you know 10 women in your life, you know somebody with endometriosis and it is excruciating. It's it's incredibly painful for these women. So, you know, I, I definitely think we need functional assays. So ones that are, you know, either at home for screening or in the uh, OB-GYN office, like no more of this sur- exploratory surgery business because that's crazy. Yeah, I think I mentioned the last time we talked, I have a family member who has endometriosis and that you mentioned this kind of seven years to get a diagnosis, which is more or less what she experienced. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's uh, correlated with your period. So, you know, the women will say, oh, my my flow is extremely heavy and I have really bad cramps. And this is where that medical gaslighting comes in, because only in women's health is pain considered normal. Right. No man would go to the doctor and say, I'm in pain. And the doctor would say, well, that's normal. You know, feeling pain is normal. But when a female goes to a physician and says, my period is painful, they say, well, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be. And it actually isn't, ladies. It's actually not supposed to be painful. So if you're in, if you're having cramps or you need a heating pad, you need to take a day off of work, um, that you should see a physician. But the challenge that these women face is that, Physicians are not necessarily trained in endometriosis. It's not even a specialty. And uh, there's no test for it. Like I said, they have to go through surgery. Uh, A lot of times women are told in the seven-year journey, well, that's just your period. You must be sensitive to it. You know, you must have just a low pain tolerance. Um, You know, my my mother, when I started my own podcast, Femtech Focus, two years ago, she listened to an episode on endometriosis. And my own mom said, called me up. She said, I'm pretty sure I had it because when I was a kid, I would just cry and cry as a teenager. I had to take off of school and, you know, endometriosis is genetic. Um, I I don't think I have it, <laughs> thank God. But, you know, what we see is that moms pass down endometriosis to their daughters. And when their daughters have extreme pain, the moms say, well, that's what periods are, honey. They're supposed to be very painful. Here's a heating pad. Here's some Advil. And so it's actually this chronic condition that continues to live on generation by generation because we're not stopping the, we're not diagnosing the mom, right? And so it's carrying on to the daughters. Look, I don't even have the words. Just (laughs) just, that, that just sounds awful. Yeah. I, I, I don't even. I'll throw one more shocking fact in there. Uh, okay. If, if that wasn't shocking enough, um, endometriosis was still classified as hysteria in the 1990s as a billing code. Hysteria meaning like you're crazy. Right. In, yeah. in the 90s. In the 90s. Today, oh they God. do have an endometriosis uh, billing code, but it is a uh, specialty billing code, like a rare one. This is not my forte, so y'all, so don't quote me on this for any anyone out there who codes bills and does billing codes, works at a payer office. But uh, apparently, it is still a specialty billing code, which is more often than not, co- not covered by your insurance. That's 
That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. All right, you, you mentioned the the concept of medical gaslighting a little while mm-hmm. ago, uh, and and we're going to kind of relate that to endometriosis. But or, so let's define what what is medical gaslighting. Medical gaslighting is this concept of essentially, you know, telling women that their symptoms are not real or that they're normal part of life. And so gaslighting is this, you know, uh, a term that you can use in everyday life where it's like you you mention you say hey i'm noticing this and people say no that's not real and then the individual starts to question their own reality right so that's what gaslighting is so medical gaslighting is a woman going to a physician and it disproportionately affects women men men likely have medical gaslighting experiences too but disproportionately it's female patients go to their doctor and they say you know like this endometriosis i have extreme pain during my period because we lack diagnostic tools that physician isn't like going into their medical training in their mind saying, oh, when a patient presents that symptom, I should run this test for these diseases. When you don't have diagnostic tools and the only way to diagnose something is saying, hey, let me cut you open and look around inside. The doctor would rather say, hey, you know, you may have, you know, just be really sensitive or how about we just put you on a birth control and you don't have your period or how about, you know, you take Advil and then all of a sudden this woman, you know, doesn't have her period for 10 years. She's on birth control from age 14 to 24 and she gets off of it, tries to have, you know, a baby or something with her husband or partner and then she can't because she has endometriosis. So it's this chronic condition, but getting ahead of myself. Medical gaslighting essentially is women going to physicians, complaining of symptoms and not being believed. Okay. Now, in uh, many of the kind of lab sort of professional organizations, there's this push for reducing uh, what's what's called unnecessary lab tests. Mm. And so I, I kind of want to, if we can talk about this, and I don't even Ooh, know if we can come, come up to, with an answer for this, but how do you make the distinction or how do you differentiate between what's an unnecessary test and what's medical gaslighting? Oh my goodness, Dennis. I love that discussion Um, Mm -hmm. because (laughs) I'm like queen of test, test, test. So the fact that there's a movement that says less testing, it's like kind of contradictory, right? Well, I, I would, um, I would venture to say that, you know, I think that we're probably testing too much for the wrong stuff. You know, like if we had better tests that were more specific, we probably wouldn't have to run as many. Right. In those seven years, the woman might be told, maybe you have Lyme's disease. Maybe you have uterine cancer. Maybe you have ovarian cancer. Maybe you have irritable bowel syndrome. Right. And so maybe all those extra additional tests that were, you know, are excessive are actually just because we don't have the right test in the first place or the right understanding, especially for females of, hey, this symptom is often correlated to this. I'll give you another example, menopause. So we don't have a test to prove a woman is in menopause or not. And we could, we could do hormone tests and try to figure out, is she perimenopausal? Is she postmenopausal? Like we could try to actually track hormones and help a woman identify that. Women on average experience menopause symptoms for three years before they realize it's menopause. So first of all, we have an awareness problem, right? Like women don't even understand that that's biology and that's what's happening to them. In those potentially 10 years of menopausal symptoms, she may be told, oh, you have depression, right? Or she may be told, oh, you know, you might have uh, insomnia, you need sleeping pills. But that whole time, it's actually just menopause. Right. And so I wonder 
at least again, from my own, you know, point of view and my expertise in women's health, I wonder how many of those excessive tests are actually testing for sim- based on symptoms that are actually a women's health issue that we don't have a test for. So, okay. So let me try to like rephrase that. So it's less about having too many unnecessary tests and not having enough necessary tests. Yeah. Or specific. It- okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Women. That's just a hypothesis. This. I'm just brainstorming mm-hmm. with you right now. That's an interesting sure, sure. thing, though. Yeah. That. Yeah. That is an interesting question. I. I, I wanted to throw that in there just because it. It. I think it would. It would. It made for an interesting discussion, and it. And mm-hmm. it has. Okay. Yeah. That's my hypothesis. They're testing right. for the wrong thing. Okay. I like it. That's mm-hmm. good. That's good. All right. Uh. So overall, it seems like from from our discussion here today. So it seems like. Did, diagnostics for women's health. And you've mentioned a lot of examples. It's lagging behind that for men's health as far as availability of tests. You know, you mentioned some of the startups that are working on some of these things, but what else can be done about this? Well, first of all, just awareness of, you know, the female biology and anatomy. One of the biggest barriers we have to getting investment in these startups, one of the biggest barriers we have to medical gaslighting, to women knowing what's happening in their bodies is simply social stigma. Literally just the taboo of talking about menses is why women are having, you know, uterine fibroids and bleeding 30 milliliters of blood a day thinking it's normal because they're not talking about their periods because society says, please don't tell me about that. Right. Right. Like we, we are not talking about urinary incontinence, you know, women's pelvic floor is weakened after vaginal birth or even just with aging, whether or not you even had a vaginal birth, you just aging loosens those muscles. One third of women have urinary incontinence. One third of women are wearing panty liners to catch their urine that falls out when they jump, when they run, when they laugh, when they sneeze. I think that if we had a conversation more openly about what's happening in women's bodies, what's normal, what's not normal, we could decrease the number of, you know, women out there suffering thinking, oh, this is just par for the course. So I really just would love more discussion, especially among men, because, you know, women, we can have our little lady talk. But, you know, when we, for example, we go as startups trying to fundraise, 98% of investors, decision makers are men. And when you go to them trying to talk about, you know, endometriosis, they're like, endo who, right? They're, they don't understand. Yeah. Or you're talking to them about, you know, breastfeeding problems. And they're like, well, my wife didn't have any problems. And it's like, then they pass your deal because their wife didn't have that problem. And they've never heard of it before. So it probably is a small market, but it's not. It's a huge market, right? Um, that we're just not talking about. So normalizing the conversation around women's health, normalizing the conversation around just, you know, biology and what's happening and what's normal, what needs to be checked out, I think is one of the biggest things. I think that uh, medical school could do a lot better in training for women's health. So on average, a medical physician, including obstetrics and gynecology, so OB-GYNs, on average, only receive two hours of menopause training. Two hours of menopause training. Menopause is like half of our lives. Right. Like, uh-huh. how can you yeah. treat, you know, as an OB-GYN, your patients 50 over, like, how are you going to treat them? Most of their training is in birthing delivery, you know, which is very intense and high risk and important to know about. But like, we need to know about menopause. We need to know about osteoporosis. You know, uh, 60% of women will have a hip fracture by the age of 65. 
That's insane amount. Like if you have a hip fracture, that decreases your exercise. It increases your chance for, you know, obesity and then diabetes and et cetera. And so it's like these chronic, huge, huge, huge billion trillion dollar economic burdens happening because, you know, our med school is not teaching some basic female anatomy. So I think that there's honestly, my call to action is, is pretty basic. It's let's have conversations Let's teach physicians about women's bodies. And, you know, for me, where I sit and I I live in the innovation world and I think the solutions are in innovations. I think, um, you know, telehealth has been absolutely incredible for women specifically because women are, you know, there's a lot of single moms out there. There's a lot of women work in hourly wage jobs. There are a lot of women who take the bus to work. If you're asking a woman who's pregnant to come in for a pregnancy check every month, she may not be able to do that, you know, whether it's for you financially, logistically, you know, whatever. So I, I'm really excited to see how technology is actually the solution for women's health. Okay. I love it. I love it. That's that's a that's a great message. The last thing I wanted to talk about. So you're also a podcaster mm-hmm. uh, and your podcast is called Femtech Focus. Yeah. So, so, all right. So now, now's the time for you to, for you to plug the Femtech mm-hmm. Focus podcast. Let's talk about who, you, who's your target audience and kind of what, what are your goals for your podcast? Yeah. So I started it in March, 2020 because Brittany Barreto and lockdown is not a cute look. So I was like, Oh God, what do I do with all this spare time that I have? <laughs> okay. And started, a, started a podcast and within a few weeks had a few thousand listeners and realized I was onto something. So I interview experts in women's health from around the world and, uh, we deep dive on specific topics. So we, um, you know, well, we deep dive on specific topics, and I also interview women, well, f- they're majority women, but experts uh, and founders of companies. So, for example, this week's episode was the founder of the Honey Pot Company, and many uh, women listening may know that from the Target feminine care aisle. Honey Pot is a major, major tampon and pad and vaginal wipe uh, producer. So we had the founder of that CEO of that company on the show. We deep dive into really awesome scientific stuff. I interviewed a scientist who created a an ovary on the lab bench. So one day, similar to like an insulin pack where, you know, people who have diabetes and need insulin essentially injected into them, what if you ha- could have your hormones injected into you as if you had like kind of a mobile ovary? That would be very helpful for women with uh, fertility treatments or women yeah. during menopause. Uh, or even women who uh, hormones affect a lot of things. A lot of women have uh, migraines during their period. So you could get supplemental hormones via this pack. Um, even women with neurological disorders sh- see a spike in their symptoms during their menses. So for example, Parkinson's disease, uh, the symptoms are worse during your period. Uh, and they progressively get worse during menopause. Uh, same thing with ADHD. Symptoms are worse during menses. So all of these things could be potentially uh, modulated via these types of technologies. So that's who I interviewed. Just super interesting people that I, I just can't get enough of. And uh, they're about 30-minute episodes, and and they're really fun. They're for everyone. We do have a lot of male listeners. If you are a man who wants to do right by humanity. I was going to say women, but I'm just going to say humanity. You should get engaged in women's health because the tagline of women's of Femtech Focus is that women's health is everyone's health. I always think that if you want to like rid the world of bad things, just invest in women's health because women are taking care of everyone else. 
<laughs> you know, we don't just birth women, we birth men, right? And so baby right. boys will be healthier if their moms are healthier. You know, women have partners. And if a woman is happier, her partner's happier. Women are running businesses. They're sitting on publicly traded boards. If a woman's hot flashes are too hard or too intense, she's not going to be able to, we can do all the empowering we want. Women won't go to work, right? Or they will, and they won't be able to focus because they'll be so overwhelmed with all these symptoms they're dealing with. So if you want, if you want to like help the world move forward in the right direction, I, I truly believe it's investing in women's health. Okay. Yeah. I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I, I agree. And I will include a link to Femtech Focus in the show notes for this episode. Dr. Barreto, this has been a real interesting conversation. I have to admit, I have learned some things and I hope that this helps, uh, kind of raise more awareness for women's health. So uh, Dr. Brittany Barreto, thank you very much. Thank you. Great big thanks to Dr. Brittany Barreto. Right now, here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. I want to ask you what what sort of future projects you have. I think I saw something about a book that's in the works. Yeah, so I co-authored a book with other amazing women and it's called Women Who Boss Up in um, healthcare and wellness. And so the book is in pre-order. I'm really excited about it. Um, I have a bunch of speaking events that are coming up for that too, which I'm really, really excited about. And what I love is that even though it's about me and my cancer journey, I'm ensured that I talked about our profession because I'm very proud of it and I'm proud to be a PA. And I'm excited that I've been able to shed a small little light as to who we are and the heroes that we are for patients. When people read it, I hope that you are proud of how I described us. To hear more from Lori Marini and what it means to be a courageous cancer warrior, check out episode 55. One thing Dr. Barreto mentioned during this conversation was that the COVID pandemic showed that most people are able to perform simple lab tests at home. And this seems to be this new era of app-based testing that's on the horizon that could greatly expand home-based testing. So the question is, how far can this expand and can it include screening tests as well? And all of this, of course, increases access to care, which is very important. But if you remember back to the early part of the pandemic, when everything was shut down, you know, a lot of screening tests were delayed for many, many patients. And there's differing opinions on whether that's going to affect the incidence of cancer diagnoses in the future. But what if something like that happens again? Can these app-based screening tests fill that gap? Along with access to care, patient comfort is also an important factor. And I think, especially when it comes to women's health, a lot of these screening tests are very uncomfortable, so maybe there's a better way to do them. In any case, I think it's important to ask these questions and to look at these new technologies that are coming out to see if there's a better way that we can care for our patients. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, 
care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. And Femtech Focus happens to be one of them. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.